Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask again that you'll speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us, but also guide us, steer us, challenge us, rebuke us even. Uh, Our desire more than to be entertained or comforted uh, is to meet you truly and know you better and to be more conformed more to the image of your son. So we pray in this final session you'll give us alert minds and awake bodies, but most of all, listening ears and humble hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for having me. It's been a, been a quick but great time to be here, and I hope you're able to take something away to ponder and dwell on, to, to trust in, to act on. And uh, hopefully we can bring that to a conclusion here in this last session. Um, I know some of you are already prayerful partners with us in the work down in Hobart at the University of Tasmania. I really appreciate that. It genuinely is a kind of fellow working, whether you're a home missionary here in Tasmania or a global missionary. Uh, part of your team are not just those who work with you on the mission field, but are those who partner with you as they pray. And you know, when I, when I see you and you say, oh yeah, we're thinking of you, praying for you, encouraged to hear about you, that means a lot. So I do appreciate that partnership. Um, across the state Um, and uh, if if that's something you'd like to know more about and and you would like to become prayer supporters or financial supporters of the mission work at UTAS, uh, you can speak with me of course or um, uh, you can just find the the website ufcutas.org. So UF for Foxtrot, C for Charlie, uh, UTAS, all one word, ufcutas.org and through there you can email and, and ask to be put on our our prayer newsletter, if that's something you'd like to do. Um, But whether it's ministering at uni, or leading a church, or running a youth group, or living the faithful life and seeking to teach the Bible to your children and your nieces and your nephews, and bring up the gospel in your workplace, all of us are swept up in the ministry of the gospel. And here we have, in this last big chunk we'll look at together, from chapter 32 to 35, we have a, a vast... And, and beautiful and fearful portrayal of what preaching God's message is. We glorify God by preaching his glory in judgment and in salvation. And that's what we do in Sunday school and youth group and around the dinner table and in conversation when someone asks us and, and at university evangelistic courses and whatever else is that we uh, bring glory to God by showing his glory his glory in judgment and his glory in salvation. And we plead with people, turn from the wrath to come and trust in Christ where sure salvation is to be found. That we are a people who have been saved from judgment uh, to um, eternal life in Jesus. And, And knowing what it is to fear the Lord, what it is to love the Lord, we then plead with others, be reconciled to God. We continue the same kind of ministry Isaiah had amongst Israel to the world. Knowing what all the things that Isaiah prophesied about reached their fulfillment in Jesus. And so now we say the wrath is coming, but there is good news to be found in the Saviour King Jesus. Turn. It's a stern, sober, frightening task. Who is equal to the task? And it is also a wonderful, precious gift to give. How could we stay silent? The Lord is powerful to judge, and that's our first heading in this final session. 
He's powerful to judge. He rebukes the faithlessness of Jerusalem for not trusting the Lord that he will be able to judge Assyria and urges them to trust him over Egypt. We saw that in our last session. He warns, God can judge you, and he promises one day God will judge all the nations. He warns that he will be able to bring judgment even on his people. Look, for example, at chapter 32 and verse 9. Zeroing in, focusing on the women in Jerusalem, he says, You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail and the harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your clothes, put sackcloth round your waists, beat your, dress, your breasts for the, the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorn and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment and for this city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, and on he goes. Judgment will come eventually to Jerusalem, beware. Or 33 and verse 7. 33 verse 7. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travellers are on the road. The treaty is broken as witnesses despised. No one is respected. A land mourns and wastes away. It's folly to reject the Lord. It doesn't work in the end. In the long term, human security, complacency and hope is hopeless. Our false hopes are fragile. Our little empires will fail. And what's as true for the earthly city of Jerusalem and its worldly hopes is, is true for, for any of us and any of the hopes that we might have. There's a great essay from a, um, one of the great American writers of the, the last 50 years, David Foster Wallace, who wrote an essay, a really fascinating reflection on, um, uh, on the nature of the things that we hope in um, and the way they end up cursing us. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty, your sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know all this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Whatever we trust in, power, wisdom, beauty, nations, human religion, they'll all crumble in the end. It's foolish to reject the Lord. He is the judge. He is the king. He is the powerful one. If you ignore God, he won't ignore you. One day we'll all come face to face before him. The religious, the worldly, the churchgoer even. Beware. 
One day we'll all stand exposed and, and if our trust is not in Jesus alone, the Lord will judge his people, those who claim to be his people, but more, the Lord will judge all the nations. And so his point is, you're better off sticking with the Lord than running after uh, Egypt or begging for mercy from Assyria. 33 verse 1, Woe to you, O destroyer, speaking to Assyria. You who have not been destroyed, woe to you, O traitor, you have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you'll be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you'll be betrayed. Or verse 3, At the thunder of your voice, the peoples will flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. You plunder, o nation, your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, men pounce on it. Uh, or verse 17 of chapter 33. Your eyes will see the, the king in his beauty and a view, a land that stretches afar, and your thoughts you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer of Assyria? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see these arrogant people no more. Those people of an obscure speech with their strange and incomprehensible tongue. Verse 23, your riggings hang loose, the mast is not held secure, the sail is not spread. There is an abundance of spoils will be divided and even the lame will carry off the plunder. God will judge the whole world. He'll put the wrong to right. He'll call the arrogant, the oppressor, the genocide, the dictator, he'll call them to account. The small workplace bully, the rapist, the hateful preacher, the people smuggler, the liar, the cheat, he'll call them to account. There is in the end only one sacrifice that will satisfy the anger of God and that is the full judgment of God poured out or the full judgment of God poured out on his son for our salvation. The last two chapters of this section, chapter 34 and 35, are kind of like a two ways to live presentation, an application for this whole section we've looked at. Two ways that things could end up. Judgment, chapter 34, and mercy, chapter 35. Chapter 34, come near you nations and listen, pay attention you peoples, let the earth hear and all that's in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all his nations, his wrath is on all their armies, he'll totally destroy them, he'll wipe, give them over to slaughter, their slain will be thrown out, their dead bodies will, be send, will send up a stench, the mountains will be soaked with their blood, all the stars of heaven will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll, all the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I've totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It's covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them, the bulls and the calves, the great bulls, their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat. It's a bloody imagery, isn't it? Violent imagery. But here, the, the imagery is not being used to convey that God is a serial killer or a torturer, that somehow he is taking delight in causing, in inflicting pain for pain's sake. 
No, the imagery is that of sacrifice. Did you notice that the, the, the blood, the kidneys, the, the oxen as we get towards the end there, the sacrifice language? This is the full satisfaction of the judgment of God, as in a sacrifice offered up to appease the anger of God, the sacrifice and the, the, the kidneys of the animal and, and, and pulled apart to be offered up as a sacrifice so that God's anger will be fully quenched. That imagery is used here to say, here, in the end, in the right, true, fair, good, justice of God, evil will be completely dealt with. That's the point. God will thoroughly and completely deal with evil. Either in the judgment of God or in the substitute of his son, only then will God's anger be fully satisfied. There's another view of judgment in the second half of the chapter, chapter 34, uh, verses 8 to 17, and that is the description of desolation, uncreation. Verse 8, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulphur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels. Nettles and brambles her stronghold. She'll become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. And the night creatures will also repose and find for themselves places of rest. The owls will nest there and lay eggs. She'll hatch them and care for the young under the shadow of her wings. And the falcons will gather each its mate. Desolation, emptiness, hollowness, all gone. Similar language is used earlier in Isaiah, chapters 24 to 27, uncreating, with the Spirit of God being removed from his life-giving function and, and, a, and a judgment of God experienced forever and ever, which is a, a, a death, a dying, a ruin. C.S. Lewis, in his um, uh, science fiction books, um, gives a beautiful description. Beautiful is not quite the right word. I mean, it is a kind of an ugly beauty, I suppose. He writes well. <laughs> and and he, he, he describes this sense in which we mustn't think of hell and the eternity in hell as being beautiful, nice, likeable people uh, puzzled and pleading, saying, but God, I'm a beautiful, nice person. Why am I here? I really meant well. I just didn't believe in Jesus. Why? Forever and ever. But rather, we must realise that, that once we come under the final judgment of God, all the preserving goodness and lovableness and niceness that we still enjoy, even though we're sinners in this age, all of that's removed in the final judgment. 
within the story, C.S. Lewis um, says that up to this point, whenever he thought of hell, he pictured lost souls as being still uh, human in, in that kind of sense. Now as he watches a damned soul in the stories, a, a soul under judgment, as the frightful abyss which parts ghosthood from manhood yawned before him, pity was swallowed up in horror. In the unconquerable revulsion of the life within him from positive, self-consuming death. He looks at this man, Weston, and says, If the remains of Weston were there, speaking through the lips of this unman, then Weston was not now a man at all. The forces which have begun, perhaps years ago, to eat away his humanity had now completed their work. The intoxicated will which had slowly poisoned the intelligence and the affection had now at last poisoned itself and the whole psychic organism had fallen to, fallen to pieces. Only a ghost was left, an everlasting unrest, a crumbling, a ruin, an, older, an odour of decay. And this, thought the main character, this might be my destination too. That when the judgment of God finally comes upon the lost soul, we can take this imagery too far and uh, somehow say that we vanish altogether. No, no, we remain. There is an eternity to hell and there is a personhood in hell, but it is given over to sin and to ruin. It's lost indeed. It's pitiful and wretched and horrible to be pulled away from all which gives life and goodness and lovableness. What do we say before a warning like this, before the horror of this burning fire for all eternity, desolation for all eternity, wrath of God bringing punishment for all eternity? What do we say before Jesus' warning of the worm not dying for the outer blackest darkness? What? Well, without, throughout this section, Isaiah again and again says, listen, listen while you still can. 30 verse 30. The Lord will cause men to hear his majestic voice. Listen, hear. 32 verse 9. You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen. Hear what I have to say. 33 verse 13. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. 34 verse 1, come near you nations and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear. Pay attention. This is important. This is not something to ignore and scoff, to tune out. This is very, very important. And that's what we do as those who preach and teach and evangelize that's what we do that's what any of us do when we are in a place where we have the opportunity we're trying to say to people we're praying to God for people that they might listen that they might hear Jesus does it in his parables doesn't he anyone who has an ear to hear let them hear For the day is coming. Listen, don't be complacent. Prepare for the day you die. Of all the things you could do in your life, of all the things you could learn about and become experts in and be entertained by and dwell upon, prepare for eternity, won't you? Won't we? 
And won't we pray for our family members, our neighbours, our pew-sitting companions who don't have a saving knowledge of Christ, the nations of the world, that they would listen. For Christian ministry, the unique church duty, we do many good deeds as Christians, but our unique duty is to warn of the coming judgment, prepare people for death, watchmen on the walls, we have a grave task, a great burden, a woe, a doom, a warning to proclaim. And it's a great act of love to know of the judgment to come and to be able to extend that warning. The Lord judges. Listen while you still can and repent. 30 verse 19 says just that, doesn't it? O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you'll weep no more how gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he'll answer you. Or 31 verses 6 and 7. Return to him, you who've so greatly revolted, O Israelites. For in that day, every one of you who reject their idols of silver and gold, your sinful hands have made. Or 33 verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in times of distress. For the Lord is powerful to judge, but he is also powerful to save. All through Isaiah, even the darkest passages of judgment flip. And all the time we see this shining through, the promise of Hope. There are good things in store. He preaches the gospel beforehand, the gospel that comes in Jesus. In this section of Isaiah, he does an interesting thing. He takes Exodus images, Moses and Pharaoh and the Red Sea and the Passover. He takes these images and repackages them. The Exodus, this defining story of God's rescue... Yeah? Overcoming the gods of Egypt, bringing a new life, a new nation, a new creation through the waters of the Red Sea. The Psalms sing of it, don't they? Again and again and again. Praise the Lord. Who is the Lord? The Lord, the God of Israel, who rescued with his right hand, his outstretched arm. That's the language, isn't it? And he was reached down mercifully, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, and saved Jacob in the promises of Abraham and brought them to his mountain, his holy mountain, and gave them his law and into his land, his promised land. And so here Isaiah takes all that and says, that's going to happen again. There's going to be a new exodus, a, a fulfillment of that bigger, grander, realer, fuller. A new beginning, a new hope, a new rescue, a new creation. So 30 verses 19 to 25, we see an example of that. O people of Zion, you who live in Jerusalem, you'll weep no more. How gracious he'll be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he'll answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity, that's again Exodus language, isn't it? The bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. God guiding them, as he did through the exodus in the wilderness. Then you'll defile your idols, overlay with silver and your images covered with gold. You throw them away 
Away with you, verse 23. He'll also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and beautiful. In that day your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and the donkeys will work the soil and eat the fodder and mash and spread out fork and shovel. In the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. A new land flowing with milk and honey. A new blessed land. A new world. Different as verse 26 goes on to describe, more glorious. Or he uses the language of Passover in chapter 31 and verse 4. This is what the Lord says to me, 31 verse 4, As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamour. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He'll shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and rescue it. And then in chapter 32, this is merged with the description of the king. This is now, we think, King David perhaps a little. A new King David coming out of a new exodus who will bring a new glorified forgiven, secure people. 32 verse 1, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like a stream of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Verse 8, but the noble man makes noble plans and by noble deeds he will stand. And there'll be a new creation in their hearts, verse 3, 32 verse 3. Their eyes of those will see no more, uh, the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. There'll be wisdom granted, new hearts given, new life enabled. 32 verse 15, the Spirit poured upon us from on high. And then the whole land will be renewed, the desert becoming a fertile field, the fertile field like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert. Righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in a peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undeserved places of rest, a new life, a new kingdom, new hearts, blessing from the Spirit. A new exodus, a new redemption a new rescue, a new world, out of slavery to the nations, to sin, to death, to hard hearts, redeemed into new life, spiritual vitality, forgiveness, life, joy, security. The Lord is powerful to save. And so return to the Lord, Isaiah says. Hear him. Turn back to him. He's good. Trusting in the Lord is a good thing. Becoming a Christian is a good thing. There is life, real life. There is freedom, true freedom. And live in his ways. Walk in his path. Enjoy his world. Enjoy relationship with him. And living life well following him. 
And this section closes, as I said, in 34 with judgment, but 35 with a beautiful picture. It's a picture of the way, the path of those who are redeemed will walk on. A bit later on, there's the parallel passage in chapter 40 that gets quoted about John the Baptist. Prepare the way for the Lord in the desert. Make straight paths for him. You know, Matthew and Mark quote that, don't they? And say, yeah, well, and that's how John came, to prepare a way in the desert, to prepare a straight path for him. Well, here's another really parallel passage to that. Here is the way that John the Baptist prepared. Here is the new Exodus way that John the Baptist prepared and that Jesus brings. Here is the way of salvation when the Lord saves finally in this new Exodus that Isaiah promises. 35 verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it'll burst into bloom. It'll rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Don't fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It'll be for those who walk in the way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. The ransomed, the redeemed, the bought back will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. And so John came in the desert and said, prepare the way for the Lord, didn't he? And he baptised a repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Get ready. God is coming. And the one John promised was Jesus who came to open up this way and to bring this new exodus. And how do we know that? Well, when John doubted, what did Jesus say to John's disciples? Hey, John, look. What do you see? The blind see, those who are deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk, leap for joy. Don't fall away on account of me. I'm the one. I'm bringing the way. And he opened up that way finally, not simply through leading people back to a spot on this earth. He ransomed the people of the Lord. He redeemed the people of the Lord at the cost of his own life. His way was the way of the cross. And through that cross and the redemption of his blood opened up a way that we now can walk on. Any of us can walk on. The most wicked, the most vile, the most drunken, the most foolish, the most untrustworthy, the failed, the flawed, the guilty, the shamed, No matter where you've been, what you've done, or what's been done to you, 
through the blood of Jesus, there is a way into life forever. And though we walk now perhaps on that way through a desert of pain and struggle, we know at the end he leads us to resurrected bodies, transformed hearts, forgiven consciences, eternal life. Good news, isn't it? The gospel is really good news. And that's what we tell people when we evangelise. <laughs> when we get the opportunity and someone says, so what's this whole Christian thing about? Well, why did you become a God person now? You know? Or can I come to your church? Or this is what we're telling people about. And it's one of the most wonderful things ever, right? Eh? It's one of the great joys of life. And when you do hear that, that person come to faith, I was blind and now I see, the chains are gone. When you hear that, man, it warms your heart, doesn't it? And the angels in heaven rejoice, don't they? What a privilege to be a part of. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, we, we do fear you because there's no, nothing greater to fear. You're, you're to be feared more than the devil, more than the rulers of this world. You're powerful and you're just. But the very one we fear, we also rejoice in and trust in and rest in. Because you are our father. You are our redeemer our saviour. We exalt you and we rest in you and your great saving work in your son Jesus Christ. Please keep teaching this, this beautiful message to our hearts and our minds. By your spirit, teach it to us each day. Remind it to us. Use one another here for us to remind one another of this great thing, to live in the light of your word and your purposes. And we think of those family members who don't know you, the neighbour and the colleague who don't trust in your promises. We think of the, the thousands in the northwest, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, the millions in our world, the billions. And we pray before your return that your gospel would spread far and wide and that you would redeem many by the blood of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>